a fire on the mountain burning out of control. The sky is set ablaze in all its red and gold. The temperature's rising and the wind is blowing hot. We gotta turn this ship around before we run aground. We gotta turn this ship around before we run aground. Welcome to Off the Record with Paul Hodes here on WKXLAM and FM, streamed live over the internet at nhtalkradio.com, where you can find us archived for your binge listening pleasure. We're also a podcast on Google, Stitcher, and iTunes, so you can reach us anywhere in the known universe, day or night. I'm really happy to welcome back to Off the Record uh, now frequent guest, Matt Robeson, who writes the blog, WarPerfectUnionForum.com, an observer and participant in politics from way back, a really smart guy. Matt, welcome back to Off the Record. Great to be back. Things are heating up. Things are heating up all over the United States, not to mention current events. We seem to be backing down a bit from war with Iran. Speaker Pelosi is still holding on to the articles of impeachment because Mitch McConnell apparently, after leaving the White House, wants to have a show trial without any witnesses. Hard to have a trial with no witnesses. Um, So you have uh, the president's conduct around Iran and uh, the tragedy of Iran shooting down an airliner, rocket strikes on American interests in Iraq, Iraq asking us to leave that country, um, and the impeachment all going on at the same time. And we've got a presidential election. We've got an active primary where the polls are up, the polls are down. And I have to tell you, Matt, from from my conversations and observations of at least what's going on in New Hampshire, I would say that 75% of folks in New Hampshire still have no idea who they're going to vote for when it comes to the New Hampshire primary. There are a lot of people who seem to have two, three, four five candidates that they're considering. People are still actively checking candidates out at town halls and coffee shops and living rooms. But there's a huge undecided element here, no matter what the polls are saying. Um, And I'm not sure, you know, I'm not on the ground in Iowa, so I can't comment about Iowa. But but this is definitely a... um, a, a very different atmosphere. Uh, usually by this time in a presidential primary, people are pretty well decided about where they're going. Um, what are you seeing in the ether? What are you seeing in the polls? What are you, what are you thinking about where the primary is? Now, and obviously, we in New Hampshire follow the Iowa caucuses, and some observers of the political scene have said, well, New Hampshire's kind of lost its mojo this year. Everybody's looking uh, more at Iowa than New Hampshire. Uh, I'm not sure whether that's true or not, but um, Iowa could play a very large 
part in deciding for people in New Hampshire what they're going to do. What do you Absolutely. think? Absolutely. Yeah, I well, let's start with Iowa and New Hampshire. I, I think that's a, and then we can zoom out. I agree that based on the somewhat limited evidence we have so far, the situation does seem very fluid. Now, the last time you and I had checked in on this, we did have some polling evidence from within New Hampshire that people really were remarkably undecided, were actively encouraging new entrants into the field, a significant number of Democrats really wanted to see some other candidates come in, which is kind of remarkable, given how many there are. What we can say, based on polling today and polling averages, is that it looks like in Iowa, there's basically a three-way tie, as of today, three-plus weeks out, among Sanders, Biden, and Buttigieg, with Warren beginning to fall back a little bit into fourth. In New Hampshire, it's kind of the same story. Biden, Buttigieg, and Sanders are clustered. Warren's doing a little bit better in New Hampshire. Uh, but the polling averages also suggest kind of just a bit more separation of Biden and Sanders at the top. But to go back to your point, I think it's incredibly chaotic, fluid, and complicated. And just to give a very quick example, as you noted, Iowa could have an outsized role this year. And what makes it very, very hard to figure is the caucus rules in Iowa. They literally gather in caucuses in room and they do an initial vote where you physically put yourself around the room uh, with the candidate that you favor. And anyone who doesn't reach a 15% threshold, their supporters walk around to a different area. So with the number of candidates that are active in the field right now, it starts to get pretty tricky as people will start to walk around these rooms in <laughs> Iowa, where will they go? Well, there are, um, no, there are no, you know, the, here's the problem. The real problem is, yeah. is a geographical or physical problem. In Iowa, there are only four corners in any room. I mean, what are they going to do? Where are they going to find some more corners for people to hide in? It's, uh, you know, it's... And what if you're in a circular room? That's then right. it's really complicated. Oh, man. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I, you, you can just... You know, in New Hampshire, we have the luxury of having the first uh, real vote. People go into the booth with a with a ballot and they mark them with pencils so that we don't have any hanging chads. But in Iowa, it's like it's like a barn dance. It's like it's like you know it's it's like some kind of night at the prom where you're where you're trying to do some speed dating and you you go to speed date with your candidate. Your candidate, I mean. There are there are a lot of candidates on uh, who are going to be considered in Iowa um, from 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 all over. I mean, candidates who aren't polling, candidates who are polling. You, I mean, it's there's going to there's going to be like fifteen candidates on the ballot. So so you have these fifteen little pods, and then it's like you know, I mean, it's like uh, um, uh, uh, musical chairs where okay, my guy, my candidate didn't get enough. I'm going over to that corner. And and so whoever's number two or three in a lot of people's consideration is 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 going to be really important in Iowa. Absolutely. And there are sometimes deals cut, sometimes locally within a precinct among campaigns to say, hey, you know, if we end up in, you know, below the threshold, 
we'll go to you, you come to us. The, the upshot is that, look, it, it, it's very hard to say if the various things the campaigns spend their time and money on work. There's actually a big uh, political science literature that looks at this question of what works in campaigns. And there's a perennial question of how much one's ground game works, how much organizing uh, can be effective. My rule of thumb uh, in, in campaigns that I've worked on in the past is a really good ground game where you have an advantage over the other campaign might get you two or three points uh, at the end of the day. It seems like I haven't worked on the ground in Iowa. I have worked extensively in New Hampshire. From what the people that I've worked with who have who've had real on-the-ground Iowa experience say, it does seem like Iowa is a bit of an exception. And that level of organization of having on-the-ball precinct captains, of having a, a real experienced network of people um, who know how to operate within the caucus structure, that is an advantage. And it, it just makes the situation incredibly chaotic and fluid. It would seem to suggest that candidates like uh, Bernie Sanders, who's been, this isn't his first rodeo, or Joe Biden, this isn't his first rodeo, um, with hopefully experienced staffs and a sense of what it'll take, um, may have some real uh, advantage in Iowa if what you say is true. And it is, it's true that, you know, if you, if you know the landscape in Iowa and you've worked there before and you know how the caucus dance works, the musical chairs of politics, um, it does give you an organizing advantage because organizing in Iowa in terms of the ground game is really important. I mean, we always talked about that in New Hampshire when I was running in terms of the importance of the ground game. Uh, it's still, you know, vitally important. Uh, but in Iowa, it takes on an added bit of importance because you not only just have to get your people out to vote, you kind of have to make sure about the deals that are or aren't being cut, who's number one, who's number two, and how you're going to play it. And in terms of the caucuses in Iowa, it kind of, you know, I mean, they're the organization of each of those caucus uh, caucuses is is is, could, is different. It, it's all up to the individuals at the caucus, kind of how they how they do things. Yeah, it's it, it is a very notoriously hard place to model, to poll, um, and to predict, and that adds an element of uncertainty that sort of telescopes its way through the whole primary. Um, you know, if you, if you want to zoom out to the bigger picture, we do know a few things. One is that um, while Iowa and New Hampshire, uh, respectively, aren't determinative, they're not dispositive in terms of what happens in the primary uh, by any means, we do know that there, there is kind of a bandwagon effect, um, you know, a, a pathway effect, where how you do, um, especially in Iowa, to a greater extent, um, than, than other places in New Hampshire, that cascades throughout the whole primary season. So, you know, those of us who are starting to try to look at how the race for delegates is shaping up, and remember, at the end of the day, this is about delegates, it's about winning the nomination at the convention. Those of us who are focused on that exercise, it does become uh, incredibly complicated based on 
uh, how that story unfolds in those initial two states, and then to some extent in South Carolina and Nevada after them. You know, if it, just sticking with the Iowa and New Hampshire uh, issues and 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 results for a moment. While the polling suggests that there's a cluster at the top of Biden, Bernie, and Buttigieg, the three Bs, um, there are certainly other candidates with um, some momentum going into uh, this last month. It, it, it certainly seems like Amy Klobuchar has been picking up some some steam, interestingly. Interestingly, Andrew Yang has been picking up uh, some steam. Um, you've got a significant number of candidates still in the race in one way or another. I mean, John Delaney is still in the race. Cory Booker is still in the race. Uh, Michael Bennett is still in the race. Um, Mary Ann Williamson let go all her staff as of the end of the year, me included. Um, uh, but she's continuing, she says, with uh, volunteers. So, so she's still in the race. You've got all these outliers. And then you have the, 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 this X factor with Tom Steyer, who spent something like $67 million on ads. You have Michael Bloomberg, who uh, is uh, skipping the first uh, two, uh, the first four primaries, the early primary states, but has spent $143 million on television ads um, around the country. So there's a lot of uncertainty that seems to be plaguing the electorate and is going to factor in one way or another into people's thinking as uh, they go forward. And I should also uh, not um, miss Deval Patrick, who is a late entry and is putting a lot of emphasis um, late in the game in New Hampshire. And I, I guess the calculation from a lot of the late entrants is, since nobody's made up their mind and there are so many candidates, why not? It's off the record with Paul Hode. So, Matt, let's just take a break. I'm talking with Matt Robeson, uh, who is the author of a AmorePerfectUnionForum.com. Uh, here on Off the Record on WKXLAM and FM. I don't mean to cut you off, but we're going to take a short break to hear from the good folks who keep the station on the air. And we will be back with more discussion with Matt Robeson on the national political scene here on Off the Record. Don't go away, folks. We'll be right back. We're back. It's Off the Record with Paul Hodes on WKXL AM and FM, streaming live over the Internet at nhtalkradio.com. We are archived there for your binge listening pleasure. And we're also a podcast now on Google, Stitcher, and iTunes, so you can use your personal digital devices and find us anywhere on the planet, day or night. We're talking with Matt Robeson, who is the author of a more perfect union forum.com, a blog devoted to politics and political thought at kind of a deeper level than most political analysts get to. And we've been talking about the race for the presidency. We focused in the first segment on some of the issues around 
of the primary in Iowa and New Hampshire, and I was kind enough to cut Matt off just before he was going to make a really important point about what's going on nationally. So, Matt, I'm going to give it back to you. And, uh, not, a problem. not a problem. I was just going to say, before we you know zoom up to the truly big picture of, of nationally, you were talking about what about some of the other candidates who are, who are outside those top four and I was going to suggest that there are, you know, sort of two things that one might keep an eye on as, as sort of an educated reader, viewer, or listener. One is, you mentioned Amy Klobuchar, and it is interesting that she's begun to get a little bit of traction in polling in Iowa and New Hampshire, respectively, uh, polling averages about 5%, 6%. Now, there's two ways to look at that. One is what we were talking about earlier, which is that in previous cycles, analysts have talked about how many tickets are there coming out of Iowa or coming out of New Hampshire. The idea being that if you place high enough vis-a-vis your expectations, you don't necessarily need to win if the old Bill Clinton comeback kid, I came in second, but I really won type thing. You just need to do well enough so that you still seem viable going into the later contest. And so the question for a candidate like an Amy Klobuchar is, you know, on the one hand, 6% is an awfully long way from the 15% threshold you need to achieve in order to get assigned delegates coming out of Iowa or New Hampshire. On the other hand, can she stay high enough in her polling finish so that she catches one of those tickets and appears viable going forward? The other thing that I think is worth looking at is we're just beginning to see the impact of the big spending billionaires, uh, Tom Steyer and Mike Bloomberg, in Steyer's case, we just have some fresh polling out now about the impact of his advertising in South Carolina and Nevada. Now, it's one poll, all caveats apply, but it is showing him surging into second and third place, respectively. That's going to be worth keeping an eye on. Mike Bloomberg has taken a different approach. He's not advertising in the first four states, but he is making an unprecedented spending push in the Super Tuesday, that's March 3rd, uh, primary state. Um, And we have yet to see what kind of an impact that's going to have. So I think that's worth keeping a close eye on. Outside of that top four, how many tickets are there? Can Amy Klobuchar catch one of those? That's one emerging story. The second one is, what about the billionaires? Which of these strategies, Steyer and Bloomberg respectively, is going to create some traction and can it become part of the picture moving forward through the primary season? Well, you know, Steyer is polling um, in uh, Iowa and New Hampshire uh, nowhere near the top at the moment. But as we know, polls are just a snapshot. And given given how fluid this race is, you never can tell. I mean, I think uh, Steyer is polling at something like 6%, but his ads are flooding the airwaves in New Hampshire. Uh, anecdotally, I, I know that a, um, a good friend who was an activist and has had a lot of political candidates uh, in uh, the living room Um, recently let me know that uh, a really big crowd came out for uh, Steyer. Um, She was, uh, she was, you know, very impressed by uh, the size of the crowd. And similarly, 
um, Deval Patrick drew a surprisingly big crowd to that same living room. So it tells me, I, I mean, and this is within the past couple of days, uh, it tells me that uh, as we discussed the fluidity of the race and the fact that people haven't made up their minds, New Hampshire voters are still shopping seriously. Now, you know, one of the questions is, what about the impact of TV? How, 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 how important is it? Um, Steyer certainly has made a real effort. You know, he's made a real effort here uh, in New Hampshire. Um, Deval is, Deval Patrick is gearing up very quickly. I don't think Bloomberg obviously will factor into the first couple of primaries. Um, but remember, those are not the be-all and the end-all in terms of delegate counts. And what you're telling uh, our listeners about the polling in Nevada and uh, South Carolina with Steyer surging into a potential second place is truly interesting. I mean, there you've got a candidate who's uh, an outsider, an outside candidate. He's a, a billionaire. He's spending a huge amount of his own money. He's also raising money and is going to make uh, the, he just uh, said that uh, it was just reported that he was going to make the debate stage for a Democratic debate, which is the last debate before the Iowa caucuses. It's coming up uh, on Tuesday. There are going to be six candidates right now in that debate. So, so the whole thing is really interesting. Well, now, lest we make things too simple, what if we zoom out? and look at the whole big picture nationally and sort of tell the other side of the coin story. You want to do that? Sure. Let's talk, let's talk about the other side of the, of the coin. So <laughs> here's a different version of this. So we, we've been talking about the fluidity, the complexity, um, the fact that, you know, it's like the butterfly flaps its wings in Tokyo and there's a hurricane in Massachusetts. Um, you know, you, you do well in Iowa and all of a sudden you, you catch fire in that spins its way through the, through the primary and suddenly you're the nominee. There's a different version of this that we could tell them. And that is, remember this is, as we said before, a race for delegates. And the way it works on the Democratic side um, with the update of the rules in 2016 is there are just under 4,000, I'm air quoting here, but listeners can't see me, pledged delegates, um, the kinds of delegates that you win in primaries and caucuses. So that means you need 1,919 of them to win the nomination on the first ballot at the Democratic Convention this summer. If you look at where things stand in terms of delegates as of today, and big caveat here, there's so much we don't know. There's so many chaotic effects. All of those disclaimers understood. If you take that view, and if you just look at it based on polling, which I did earlier this week, what you find is that Joe Biden is within a hair's breadth of winning the nomination outright on the first ballot. Not only that, he's actually kind of crushing the field right now in terms of delegates. If you took the second and third place delegate winners, which under this view would be Sanders and Warren respectively, and you added their delegate totals, it would just about equal Joe Biden. On top of that, the website 538 put together what it calls its most complex, most, ma most mathematically complicated model ever. And it did the same kind of delegate projection. Now, its answer 
was slightly different than the straight line polling one that I did. It, it, it put Biden just a little bit lower. Uh, it put Warren and Sanders just a little bit lower. And it gave a lot more to Buttigieg, who didn't really factor in mind. You know, but the same basic story comes out of their model as the one I just described. Biden is essentially lapping the field right now. So there's a version of this that we could tell, which is, look, as of today, right now, all things being equal and all caveats understood, Joe Biden is in the strongest position and has the inside track to the nomination. But of course, a lot can change. You know, what's going on in New Hampshire is that the New Hampshire Democratic Party um, has uh, put out um, uh, it's a form for people to run as a delegate for their candidate. Well, that's the way it's done in New Hampshire. The first step is you file this form. And uh, today being Friday, I believe the deadline is today to file a form with the New Hampshire Democratic Party to say, I want to run to be a delegate to the National Convention. And as of the time I'm filing this form, my candidate is X, Y, or Z. I'm curious about how that plays into this scenario that we're seeing with so many undecided voters. I mean, if I wanted to be a delegate, and I'd be interested in being a delegate, and I haven't decided who I'm going to vote for, what do you do? Do you put down somebody? Uh, because if you're going to run to be a delegate, you're going to have to go and, and, and campaign to the extent that there will be caucuses in which uh, the various people who want to be delegates have to talk about why they should be delegates. You know, for my own part, uh, I, I I got to be a delegate when I was a member of Congress, but now I'd have to run to be a delegate. And if you don't know who you're going to vote for, what does that say about the process for at, at least saying who the delegates are going to be going into the convention? Because when you get to a to the national convention, um, the that whole picture of who it is that each individual has pledged to be a delegate can change pretty rapidly depending on what's going on at the convention and on the floor. I'm so glad you brought this up because I know it's kind of down in the weeds in terms of process, but it is a sort of interesting snapshot. So what you're bringing up with the nomination of being a delegate to the convention or a certain candidate is this is a, an organizing function of the various campaigns. They try to put together slates of delegates who would represent, if they win those delegates in the, in the nominating contest, they literally get allotted people who show up. And so you want to be darn sure that those people are going to be loyal, are going to vote for you if they said they're going to vote for you. The other thing that I think you're getting at very astutely is that because it's an organizing function, it does give a window into some of the strengths or challenges of various campaigns. It was a very interesting story this week that Pete Buttigieg, for all of his surge in Iowa and New Hampshire, is struggling to find delegates in each congressional district in Illinois, uh, especially in majority African-American districts. So that's been an ongoing 
narrative element, and it just gives a little bit of a window into some of that candidate's struggles with a big segment of the Democratic base. Yeah, you know, New Hampshire is, um, in terms of, of what we've just talked about in our internal snapshot, it's going to be really, really fascinating because one of the things that could be playing out here, and and uh, we will have a few more minutes in this segment, and then we can pick this up in in the uh, the next segment of the show. But one of the things that is seems to be coming coming about is the illumination of what some people see as a split in the Democratic Party. Others see not so much as a as a fracture, but a but a but but the two wings of the party. You've got um, a couple of the so-called moderate or centrist or incrementalist candidates who are more, for lack of a better term, establishment or institutionalists. And you can see Biden there. You can see, to a certain extent, Buttigieg, uh, Klobuchar there. Uh, then you have the uh, revolutionary candidates who uh, see a much more um, uh, need or are pushing a much faster transition, such as Warren and Sanders. Um, then you've got some outsiders like Yang and Steyer and uh, others in the middle. But this split is what we saw in 2016, and it didn't bode well for Democrats then in terms of bringing people out, what's going to happen as we move toward the uh, primary this year in terms of that split, and what does it mean? It's Off the Record with Paul Hodes. I'm talking with Matt Robeson, who is the author of AmorePerfectUnionForum.com, a blog devoted to getting underneath the skin of politics to what is really going on. Uh, We're on WKXL AM and FM. And we'll be back after these short messages from our very important sponsors. Don't go away. We're back. It's Off the Record with Paul Hodes here on WKXLAM and FM, streamed live over the Internet at nhtalkradio.com where you can find us archived for your binge-listening pleasure. We have all our shows, uh, past shows, up on that website, and uh, I have a lot of fans among my dozens of listeners who want to binge back to some of the fun shows we've had. Lots of interesting stuff, and we're a podcast on Google, Stitcher, and iTunes. We're talking with Matt Robeson, the author of AmorePerfectUnionForum.com, a blog devoted to politics. Matt and I go way back. We've uh, been talking politics now for more than a decade. Isn't that incredible? And Matt is one smart guy. We're talking about presidential politics, presidential primaries, and where we might end up. So, Matt, in the last segment before we took a break, I started talking about this divide in the Democratic Party. Is 2020 like 2016? Are we going to see a replay, as some people have envisioned, a 
a Bernie-Biden replay of the Bernie-Hillary replay, which uh, divided the Democratic Party, caused a lot of flack and, and trouble um, within uh, the left as to uh, where, where we stood and what we stand for and kind of de- seemed to depress uh, turnout and excitement? Or is, is this such a different year, given uh, the uh, fellow in the White House and, and his various misdeeds? Is it so different in 2020 that even if we see a replay of the Bernie-Biden uh, left, left or far-left split, uh, that Democrats will find it easier to unify, organize, and bring people out? Um, or is this a toxic brew for the Democratic Party? The most important question in Democratic politics uh, is pretty much what you just ran down. Taking the last part first, I think there's a ton of evidence that it is going to be easier in some ways because of negative partisanship, because of how motivating Donald Trump is for Democrats, for Democrats to coalesce. There's a lot of evidence that that's the case. There's also a lot of evidence that Democrats can't just sit back on their laurels and depend on that. Negative partisanship cuts both ways. It's highly motivating for both sides. And in fact, there's also a lot of evidence that the more extreme a candidate is on one side or the other, ideologically, politically, in terms of demeanor, it actually motivates their opponents more than their supporters. So what I think you were alluding to in the the first part of the question is this sort of simmering debate that's been happening among Democrats about the best way to beat Trump. Like, okay, there's a lot of motivation to do it, but how do you do it? And on one side, you have a group, um, Sanders kind of, let's call them Sanders supporters for short, that's a little reductive, but their argument is you have to motivate and inspire the base. You have to drive turnout. You have to prevent Democrats from defecting to third party candidates like Jill Stein. Let me just. Then there's a camp. Hey, hey, oh, go Matt, ahead, I just want to interrupt and, and tell my listeners that uh, Matt um, wrote an article, I believe, this week about the best way to engage the Democratic base. Uh, it's an article talking about the complications that we're going to about where that we'll talk about and why it's so much more complicated for Democrats than Republicans. And folks, you can go to a more perfect union forum dot com to read that. Um, and uh, you'll hear some about that uh, as as we continue. Matt, go ahead. Thank you. Always uh, on board for a good plug. Um, yeah. So on the other side of the debate are, are folks who say, look, we have to go after swing voters. We proved that this playbook works in 2018. I get the sense that this debate, it's kind of the wrong question, or it's really sort of a front for what people really mean. What people are really saying is, what they're trying to argue is, look, it's okay to be super liberal because we can win that way versus, no, you really have to have more moderate candidates. Now, in my view... There's a lot of evidence on the side of that moderate camp. Uh, I'm not completely discounting the uh, sort of liberal camp I, I, by any means, but 
you know, for example, in 2018, of the 40 House seats that Democrats picked up, 33 were won by candidates that were endorsed by the major moderate Democratic group, and zero were won by candidates endorsed by Bernie Sanders' Our Revolution group. Candidates who endorsed Medicare for All did about five points worse on average, if you count for all the other major factors, than candidates who did not endorse Medicare for All. So the point is that I think it's worth having the right question asked here. And that's what my article was about, which is, let's, let's get past the left versus center argument and talk about the idea of, to win, Democrats really do need to motivate their base. They need their base to turn out because Donald Trump is surely going to motivate the Republican base. So what's the best way to do that? And in order to do that, you have to really understand the differences between the Democrats and the Republicans' base. So let's just hold on right there, because you're, you're sparking all kinds of thoughts for me. You know, so I'm, I'm, I'm I, I, in some ways I'm a typical voter, in some ways I'm, I'm probably not a typical voter, because I've had um, uh, some experience in politics. I mean, I was, I was a U.S. congressman. I, I got up close and personal with uh, uh, presidential, presidents and presidential candidates, and I've just come off working for uh, a presidential candidate who, um, uh, you know, to be fair, is an, was an, out, is an outsider uh, with a very far-left um, agenda. And um, so, you know, I'm now looking at the field and thinking about um, what, you know, what, what, what to do. And I'm, and I'm you know, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking, I, I, I understand from my years in, in the United States Congress and working in Washington that an awful lot of change needs to happen to, for us to get back to an effective government, because I don't... I'm not uh, uh, I'm not big on big or small government. I want an effective government, one that works and one that creates more fairness, more opportunity, um, and uh, uh, a safer, peaceful, uh, a sustainable planet. Now that, that that doesn't seem to be to be an overly far fetched agenda. And then I, I I wonder how do how do we get there, and. And the question is made more complicated because of the existence and the administration of Donald Trump. It's more complicated than it's ever been, uh, as far as I can see, because you have this, um, what is good, in some ways, good news for Democrats, because Democrats who I think have have often been relatively ineffective at emotionally resonant messaging, seem to do best when there's a real villain to go after. And certainly Donald Trump gives us no shortage of villainy to go after. So as an organizing principle, we've got to beat Trump. Uh, that That's important. On the other hand, um, we know that the problems or the challenges and the issues we face go far deeper than simply the crookery of Donald Trump, because underneath we have a system that has been uh, cast as a system where 
Uh, Corporations and corporate money seem to have an undue influence on the actions of our legislators. There's too much bottled up. We've had Supreme Court decisions that allow dark money to influence things. And we have existential crises that we're now facing in terms of climate change. And we have an essentially existential crisis that Trump has created in terms of restoring the foundations of our democracy. So this question is not so much left, right. And some of it goes to who are the real vote, the voters who are going to decide the election? Is it the progressives in New Hampshire who overwhelmingly voted for Bernie Sanders in 2016? I mean, two to one uh, over Hillary Clinton. Um, Or is it other voters around the country, a large uh, pool uh, or a school of fish who are now who, who are swimming in what direction and is there a myth of electability is this all just like like pundit head scratching trying to say well there are swing voters here and here and there when really um, voting for a president is an affair of the heart and what you need to do is forget about who you think in your, you know, in your rational mind is going to be more electable, but you just got to go with the person who you think is going to do the best job as president of the country. What's a poor voter to do? And what's a poor thinking voter to do if they're trying to suss out and game out electability? Is it even possible? Or is all the information that we have about who the swing voters are wrong? Well, there's a lot to hack there. Let me see (laughs) if I can channel it into two quick points that I think respond to. You're you're raising a lot of importance. The first is you touched on your experience in Congress, and I think you are a perfect example in your career of understanding how real change works happen. The things that get a lot of attention are big, blockbuster, showy ideas, but you know, you know from working in the trenches, in local organizing, in local economic development, as a prosecutor, and then in Congress, that real change happens step by step. The boldness is in having the discipline and uh, the tirelessness to stick with things. As a very, very quick example, you are the one who worked with Anne-Marie Morse, whose daughter Michelle died of cancer, and who had some terrifying, horrible choices to make about what medical treatment her daughter could get because her daughter wasn't covered under her insurance. And you worked with her to drive a change in the law, a, a, a landmark change in the law, but a small one not the one that, you know, would go down in the history book, to allow kids up to age 26 to stay on their parents' health insurance. Well, what happened? You managed to pass that. That became one of the key planks of the Affordable Care Act. And because of that provision, because of that law that started with Anne-Marie Morse right here in New Hampshire, the best estimate is that there are one to three million people in America right now who have health insurance coverage. That is how real change happens. So I would just 
push back on the idea that big, bold, Green New Deal-esque, lofty ideas are the, are the way that, that real change occurs. I will stop there. I have a second point about the, about the swing voters, but um, I, I think that that's an important idea to lay down. Yeah, you know, it's. Uh, I think that one of the things that I've heard uh, from uh, lots of people is a nervousness over uh, big, bold platforms um, at a time when uh, so much uh, of the foundation of our democracy and so much of the functioning of our government has been so damaged by... Uh, what this administration, its philosophy, its its rambunctiousness, its off-the-cuff uh, uh, tweet by government by tweet ha- has done just to the functioning of government. We have so many agencies that have been hollowed out, so many agencies who don't have leadership, uh, and so much policy that is created it, uh, at the behest of uh, the billionaire corporate cronies uh, who suck up to the president. And so for uh, a lot of people, uh, the notion of countering uh, that, s- th- what has happened with, with gigantic leaps uh, is, is becoming a, 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 a challenging question. Uh, is it possible at all? Uh, or uh, what we really need uh, now is a restoration of some of the basics of democracy, some of the basics of a functioning government, some of the basics of a functioning foreign policy and outreach to the world, some restoration of the um, heart and soul of America as a, as a country whose ideals um, of freedom and democracy, fairness and opportunity are restored before we take some great leap uh, into um, more expansive uh, change. So that uh, maybe uh, it's time for a, a transitional president. Uh, and, and that, I see, as a pretty fundamental split in what's going on for Democrats. Matt, we're going to have to have you back real soon to finish up and continue this discussion. It's Off the Record with Paul Hodes on WKXL. We've been talking with Matt Robeson of AmorePerfectUnionForum.com. I want to thank all my listeners. I want to thank the sponsors who keep this station on the air. Folks, we'll be back next week with more Off the Record with Paul Hodes. <laughs>